Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Oh, brothers and sisters, you're tuning in to episode 32 of the Howie Games. Love you, absolutely love you for listening to the show. And this week's episode of the Howie Games presents, for your listening pleasure, Chris Judd. It's not good enough, oh. Judd. Pick up, electrified. Oh, no. Look at the Judd, can the master conjure something from the boundary? Oh, yes. yes, he can. Oh, Juddy. That's beautiful from Chris Judd. <laughs> he is a superstar. There is no need to say anything else. Pickle. Yes, Big Penguin. Why does Daddy have Juddy on? Dunno, Pengy. Why? Don't you rate him? Pickle, he played for the Eagles. And the Blues. I see your point. He should have got a Hawks player on. Exactly. Why Juddy when we could have rolled out? Hodgy, Cyril, Shawnee Burgoyne, Big Roughnuts, not to mention Gibbo, Jumping Jackie Gunston, or even Clarko. He's lost the plot. I reckon he went overboard on the wacky tabacky in Jamaica pickle. (laughs) No, Chris Judd is actually a perfect guest for the Howie Games. Why? Because he understands what it takes to be elite and he's eloquent enough to explain it in great detail. This chat covers footy, the need to work harder for longer than your opponent, skateboarding, love and the share market, including, for long-time listeners, a hot Chris Judd stock tip. The Howie Games can't be held liable for you losing all your cash on Chris's share market tips. The interview was recorded in Chris's office, which has a desk and one chair. Minimalist, so much so that he arrived in his car and took a second chair out of the boot of his car for me to sit on. Generous. The app was actually recorded before this year's AFL season had begun, and like most footy fans at that stage, I knew Chris as a brilliant footballer, but also from personal experience that C. Judd was a really, really terribly boring, cliched post-match interview, which he's more than happy to admit. Have a listen to this. Oh, look, I don't know how much you want to read into it, but certainly we rate Collingwood really highly, and to come over and, and have a win like that, that is, uh, is pleasing for the club, but look, there's still plenty we need to work on from the game, and looking forward to next week. Come on, Juddy, give us something. To give him credit, though, he was very, very yeah, You know, four weeks ago during pre-season, we were in crisis talks, and, and four weeks later we were premiership favourites. So, you know, we just need to maintain our equanimity and, and go forward and, uh, yeah, keep, keep looking forward to each challenge. Equanimity. Equanimity, if you don't mind. Calmness and composure, especially in a difficult situation, for those that may be wondering. Anyway, I've now spent the last six months working alongside Chris on Triple M's AFL coverage on a Friday night, where the former vanilla media performer has become a massive on-air sensation with his dry wit and his confidence and his very, very, very loose Judge Juddy segment, which has become an outrageous radio hit. People responsible for murdering bald men in Mozambique. (laughs) Howie? Yes. Now... These bald men are being murdered and their body parts are being used for witchcraft. Police have warned bald men they should be on a high alert and be aware of ritual attacks. Now, as a bald man, (laughs) I find this terrifying, to be honest. (laughs) And initially, my reactions, I was scared and I was angry. That's what the bastards want you to do. <laughs> so I thought, how can I make, how can I turn this into a positive? And that's what I've done. But I've thought about this. We've finished to ride, and now we're getting knocked off one by one in Africa, uh, Duke. It's only a bit a matter of a time, because before the bald man's extinct, and we know that with scarcity comes an increase in value, Howie. 
And I'm not ruling out 15 to 20 years' time, me strolling down the street and being viewed by masses of crowds. It's a bit akin to the way the panda is viewed in a zoo. Panda. People will be asking, Mate. Beck, you know, what's yeah. it like to have a bald man? I hear he eats spaghetti with his bare hands. And I think that would be a nice way for me to round off my, uh, yeah. my existence, Purple. Now, how that man, Chris Judd, hid his real personality from the media and the public for so long during his footy career, I will never, never know. He actually asked me recently if I thought this ep would be any different if it was recorded a month ago when I'd got to know the real Juddy rather than six months ago when I still thought he was a pretty tame beast. Yeah, it would have been different, completely different, so much so I'm not actually sure the old censorship folk would have given this one the all clear, so it's probably best we did it this way. Maybe next series we might be able to feature a Chris Judd Raw version, more your adults-only episode. Anyway, I digress. The man is a star on and off the field. Enjoy Chris Judd. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion well, Chris Judd, in your fancy little office here, welcome to the Howie Games. Howie, pleasure to be, uh, pleasure to be on board. Mate, these normally, um, and I really appreciate your time, these normally start at the start and they just sort of follow through your career. And I just read your book, uh, Life, which I really, really enjoyed. Congratulations on your book. Um, and I find these things are normally best to discuss up front. I actually don't know how this is going to go, purely because... I normally feel, without being silly, on a reasonably similar intellectual level to the person I'm chatting with. I read your book and I thought, shh, I'm not sure I'm as clever as this bloke and I don't know how it's going to go. So, You're trying to soften me up and well, me into a false sense of no, security early. No, I think you might be too clever for me, but, but we'll see how we go. Um, they, they generally start at the start. Um, so I guess the obvious thing, you, you know, you, you grew up in Melbourne. Was footy something you got into early? What, what's your early memories of footy or life in general? Yeah, footy was something I, one of my earliest memories. Um, my earliest footy memory was playing Vic Kick, which Vic kick. preceded Oz Kick, such is my, uh, my age. Mm. So maybe being about five or six years of age and at the end of the Vic Kick season, you got to play an actual game. Right. Which was the grand final, which was just huge. And uh, the sort of day before that game, I got really bad tonsillitis and wasn't able to to play the game, and I was just absolutely devastated. You know, not sure if I'd ever play in another grand final, yep. um, which was just huge as a five-year-old. So I remember sort of putting my Melbourne jumper on. You're a Melbourne man. I was a Melbourne man, and then uh, just lying on the um, you know lying on the couch, sort of sulking that I wasn't able to be out there on the field. I mean, it would have barely been a proper game. But ever since then, I remember. If I did have a big game coming up, I felt a sense of relief when I would wake up and, and not be sick. Um, so it's funny the things that stay with you. And was it, were your mates playing footy or were your folks into footy or was it, like, was it a big part of your life or was it just a part of any kid's life growing up? Yeah, so my old man liked his footy. He wasn't a great player and didn't play it after about 19 or 20. Um, so that was just something we do. I had no brothers. Um, so we'd go up to the park every Saturday and kick the footy and we'd, you know, make our own goals and he, he was great at creating little games. Um, so that's a really strong memory. Uh, and then my, my mates in, high, in primary school played footy, um, but then as I got into high school, you know, my mates that I knocked around with all 
were really red hot into their skateboarding. Um, so that was the, the thing of the day. And none of those guys really played, played footy. As I got into the under-18s, I started uh, being mates socially with some of the guys who I played Sandy Dragons with and actually in, uh, you know, a really strong relationship and in business with one of those guys I met as a 17-year-old. But um, certainly the you know, 13 to 17 years, those guys were, were interested in other things. Skateboarding. So were you a skater? Skater, yeah, big on the skateboarding. So Paran Bowl was headquarters. Um, so I always loved Paran, the area. I used to come here every weekend with, you know, the Hungry Jacks on uh, the corner of Commercial and Chapel, which is now gone. That was sort of a regular spot to get a, a cheap price cone or, or whatever else you could afford. And what could you produce on your skateboard? Look, re- I, I was a, in our group, I was... Mid to poor in the skateboarding mix. Like I, I could kick flip down some stairs, and okay. uh, I could never ollie flip, which was significant. It's a 360 kick flip that was big. Couldn't really front front side flip. Yeah, anyway. Um, but there were some great skateboarders who we grew up with. And um, was like Tony Hawk the man was or Tony Hawk's a bit nerdy. Right. So your, your Pappas brothers oh. had a lot more street cred. Tony I'll Hawk is your. You know, you're a bit, your commercial sort of... He sold, it sold yeah, himself out. Yeah, he cashed out. Um, but, yeah, there were, at that age, it's more your local heroes. And as a young man, they're generally the, the blokes that can get into the most trouble and get the best-looking women and... That's it, that's it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, I can't picture you on a skateboard, but, you know, well, you know we, we, where there's other sports as well, obviously... Knowing you a little bit, athletics was was a big part of your background. Yeah, well. so and all those photos that came out of you around draft time, I remember were you running in your Caulfield grammar colours rather than footy stuff. I guess. Yeah, so I was um, as a young kid, uh, it was basketball, uh, cricket. Uh, sorry, basketball, athletics, and football. And then at about ten or eleven, I stopped doing athletics uh, at club level and started doing cricket instead. And cricket. What did you bring to the table there, Juddy? Opening bat, really? very aggressive, loved a front foot pull shot. Okay, so like an RT Ponting style arrangement? Yeah, would have been very suited to the 2020. At a, at a, towards the end of my cricketing career, which ended at about 16, I had a big problem with premeditating shots, which generally, <laughs> okay. generally consisted of trying to hit the ball over the bowler's head. Um, and it got sky, used to sky the ball a lot and get caught at, at mid-on. Um, so, yeah, lots of different sports. And pick, picked Aths up again in high school at Corfu Grammar and... Um, that was great. That was highly beneficial. In fact, all the sports bar cricket were highly beneficial to footy. You know, basketball's really useful. Athletics is, is incredibly useful. Um, and in, enjoyed them all. And as a father now, we'll just sort of skip around a bit. As a father now, what would your approach be with your kids as far as sport? Because my kids are seven and five now, and I think, oh, you know, they're, they're okay at that, but then I see that they're no good at that. Should I steer them away from that? Or like, what's your approach? You'll be starting to make these decisions now, I would have thought. Yeah, purely just guided by what they enjoy. Yeah. Um, so we've tried Oscar with Auskick, which he loves. So he'll do Auskick again this year. Uh, we tried him with Little Ass, which he hated. Yeah. Um, so Little Ass is out. And he started, he's doing basketball, sort of the basketball version of Auskick now, which he loves as well. Um, so we'll just be guided by him and, and what he wants to do. It's important for us that our kids play sport because of the health benefits and the social benefits you get, particularly from a team sport. Um, but we've got just zero ambitions that they become any good at it. People often ask as if you know, we're really desperate for our kids to become elite athletes. They're just, I couldn't care less. No, 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 it's a, it's a strange one that, you know, 
if your dad's an engineer, people don't say, oh, no. do you want to become an engineer? But if your dad's a footballer, do you want him to become a footballer? It's a yeah. bizarre, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and they assume that he's going to have a lot of skill in that area, which is just, you know... Uh, I remember a couple of years... Beck's not a very good footballer. Well, there you go. <laughs> there yeah. you go. But I remember a couple of years ago when uh, Tendulkar's son started playing cricket and there was a video of him and I was imagine thinking, imagine this poor kid, he's walking to the wicket with the pressure of a billion people yeah. saying, you're sashing, so I can't think that would be much fun as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got to keep that in perspective too, I guess, don't you? Like some people have said that, um, you know, our kids will have some pressure on, yep. on them to perform, but, you know, some kids don't know their parents or, no. you know, can't afford enough food. So you've got to keep all that in perspective. But, um, yeah, we're not expecting any, any heroics on the sporting field. And were you a man that had trekked to the MCG with a group of mates to watch the Demons? No, nah, I'd go to the footy with my dad yep. uh, when I was young, sort of younger than 13. In, in sort of primary school and we just go to whichever game was on at the G so my old man barracked for Sydney right so why did you go for Melbourne well it was when I was young I thought I'm not going to go for Sydney by young I mean sort of two or three mm-hmm. I thought I live in Melbourne so I'll go for Melbourne um, sort of made sense St Kilda Wood was actually the local team but Melbourne felt right and I had a cousin who went for Melbourne too so that, and who that, was a Melbourne player that was your boy Jimmy Steins and Gary Lyon were the two the two main ones yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's funny how it goes a full circle. We'll get to it. But I remember the f- when you were really going really well at West Coast, and it was this mystery about who who is this guy. I remember you sat down in a gym. Might have been Friday night footy. I can picture it clearly in my head. And you did a one on one with Gary Lyon. It was a big talking point. Oh, this week Judd's going one on one with Gary Lyon. Which I guess now you've said you grew up looking up to him. It'd be a bit bizarre to sit down with those blokes that were your heroes, and then them asking questions like that of you. Yeah, even so, like maybe as a little kid I'd hold him up on a pedestal, but by the time I was a teenager I think I was sort of aware that they were people and when they mm. were my age they were doing what I was doing and I sort of wasn't big into that sort of... So how is it then when, how do you deal with it now when people are big into that with you and, you know, there's so much more to you as a footballer when, but when people like look up to you and put you on a pedestal for what you did on a footy ground, how does that strike you? I've just always found it strange. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is because it's just one unique skill set that that I developed in the past. Um, it's always find it interesting when people extrapolate that over a whole different myriad of fields. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not. I just know that I've met some amazing people, but I know that they've got just as many flaws as the rest of us and they get annoyed when they're stuck in traffic and they have good days and bad days and sometimes they lose their temper at, at the kids. Um, but the things the public will see of them or, or will see of them, um, you know, they do come across as, as perfect. Um, so you weren't perfect? Although well, I was the only one. Right. I was the only one. Okay. I'm talking to everyone, everyone else okay. here. Yeah, because I always thought you were perfect. Yeah. I, uh, you talk, uh, again, in your, in your book, and I, I really enjoyed it, um, you talked about athletics and it was, you were sort of a midfield operator and it didn't sit well with you and did training with your dad. Um, explain that to me because I, I saw that theme come throughout the whole book and obviously your whole footy career, what you learnt sort of at that young period of your life with training and working hard. It was interesting writing the book. It almost felt like going through counselling sessions. It was yeah. the first time in my life I really spent a lot of time trying to piece together what happened from mm. the age of, you know, when I started playing sport to the end of my footy career. And I think there were, you know, my life and in turn my footy career is just filled with really important lessons that popped up um, that reinforced um, really strong beliefs that in turn reinforced good habits throughout 
my sporting career. And one of the early memories from that was as a, as a, what, how old was I? I think I was 11, 10 or 11. Anyway, in athletics, you've got club, then you've got the regional championships, which is all the clubs in your area. Then you've got the state championships. And every year we'd go to the regional championships and in the 800, I'd sort of finish, I'd finish top few in the region Mm -hmm. and sort of sixth to eighth in the state. So I'd I'd just make the final and finish mid, mid to bottom half of the final. How'd you feel about getting beat? Was it a big thing or was it just now? Yeah, I was pretty competitive, but not, no, to be honest, that sort of felt, it just sort of felt like that's where I was at. Mm -hmm. Um, and didn't put a heap of thought into it. And then when I was, this year when I was 10 or 11, the old man who did quite a lot of athletics at school and, and was a pretty good middle distance runner said, well, do you want to have a crack at actually training for it? Because I'd never trained for it. And a lot of these kids were already training, you know, properly. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we trained every night for a month, um, which is too much. That's not really how you should train as a kid. Um, and we'd do either every day. Sometimes it would be early in the morning before school. Sometimes it would be at night at the Ath track. And we trained every day for a month, had a couple of days off, and then ran the States. And in, in that time frame, I improved my time by 12 seconds, which is a huge amount in a month. My word you know? is. And, uh, and won the States, won the state championships. Um, so just at a, such a young age to get reinforcement that if you do the work and you plan for something, the benefits will come, uh, was really useful. It was interesting in that state state final the the favorite who was meant to win fell over sort of during the race um i I wonder if the lesson would have stayed as strong if he had ended up winning the race like he probably should have if he stayed on his feet Um, you didn't do a sort of was it clark and land you you, you didn't stop and (laughs) help him up not a chance right just spiked him as you just gave a little cupcake as i as i I ran past um (laughs) So no, there was none of that sort of sportsmanship stuff. It's um, amazing that you're saying if he'd gone on a one, how, how those fleeting moments can make such a difference in life. He stays up, you do all the training, you don't win, you're like, hmm, well, that training doesn't really pay off. Yeah, or, or you're like, well, it pays off, but how much does it really pay off? Yeah, I still okay. didn't win. Whereas the reinforcement from actually winning that medal was really strong. Um, so that was, yeah, and that was something that stayed with me. And, and not always at the front of my mind, but you'd come back to it um, you know, throughout my footy career. Good at school? I presume you were pretty good at school. Pretty good. I didn't do much work until I was in year 11 and then thought, I'll have a crack at this. And um, What did you enjoy at school? What English, English. English lit. Right. Sort of, yeah, humanities. Yeah, okay. So you weren't, you sort of physics and chemistry no. type man. No, we're on the same page. I yeah. could never understand that stoichiometry and all that caper. It was way, way, yeah, way. No, Beck, was a, Beck was a big science, science girl, but right. no, I, was, I was more, is it left brain? A few humanities. Know. I told you at the start you're okay. Very good. Well, I can go with anything. <laughs> left brain, Howie. Yeah, right. Definitely left brain. I'm just a dummy here. Yeah. So, mate, when did you start to think? Because um, it seemed like you kept your footy life and your social life pretty separate. Um, it almost it seemed like it wasn't cool to be the sort of fit footy guy there with some of your mates for a while. Mm. Yeah. So, well, that's that was one of the really important things. For Corfu Grammar, um, being great at school. an APS school. Great school. It's a great school, and the people that really get celebrated at at Caulfield and, and schools like that, uh, when you're a bloke, it's really guys that are, are good at sport. Mm. Um, and we all want to be accepted by our peers no matter what age, but when you're a teenager, that, that desire is incredibly strong. So for sport to be the way you're celebrated by your peers, I think subconsciously was really important to me staying engaged in sport. Yeah. Um, you know, like we, we touched on the way for me to be celebrated amongst my mates was 
through skateboarding the best or, you know, doing the most stupid things or whatever. Um, so to have that counterbalance was, was really something I was really lucky to have. What type of stupid things? What's the stupidest thing you did as a young bloke? Oh. We're a very uh, open-minded <laughs> audience here on the Howie Games, Juddy. No, I, I, would, I would, would hate to think that I would be influencing the younger generation to do stupid things. But well, some we'll of the things by saying some of the things we'd climb. Right. Yeah. Long story, but there were some stupid things, which in hindsight, was, it was very fortunate that nobody broke their neck. So when do you start to think, yeah, okay, there's a possible career? In footy, it's not all of a sudden just fun. It's like, oh, right, there's a draft. When I get to this age, I could go and do this, and they could pay me money to do it. So the AIS Academy was the real turning point for that. So that was an under sixteen academy mm-hmm. then, and to make that, as soon as you make that, oh, we were only in the third intake, I think. So that program was relatively new, but already you could look and see Josh Fraser, who was in it a year or two before, and he was drafted or. Um, you know, hosted players who'd been through the system already and now they were drafted and playing AFL and all of a sudden that makes you think, well, this is a, a genuine possibility. Before then, you don't really know where you sit in the food chain um, and just how much of a possibility it is. So that was um, firstly making the squad and then um, tickling the physical testing to work hard and to do really well in those different tests. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden you're benchmarking against people who you know a good chunk of them are going to get drafted and have careers. And if you're in the upper echelon of that group, that means that this could, be, could become real. So if, let's just say that you were an elite AFL footballer. Were you an elite 16-year-old AFL footballer? Were you a standout in that group or were you a part of the group or were you at the bottom part of the group? Um, oh, as a 15-year-old, I don't think I was elite. I think by, yeah, by the first year in that program, I think I was up, okay. you know, that was going pretty well. And the shoulders, f- forever and a day that my thoughts of you playing footy are having your shoulders taped up and seeing in the rooms afterwards taped up like nothing else, you know, those shoulder tapes on. So you obviously had problems with your shoulders. Yeah, and and that, was the, that was the, you know, when there's a knock at the draft, it was all oh, this bloke's shoulders are a bit dodgy. Yeah. Well, I dislocated my first shoulder as a seven-year-old. As a seven-year-old? Yeah, and didn't even really remember it. I just remember hemorrhaging and looking, and then it popped back in by itself. And looking at my mum and my mum, it was usually sympathetic. It was just like, it's nothing. Like, get on with it. Seven? Yeah. Um, what were you doing at the time? Playing basketball. Okay. Just going up for a rebound. And, um, yeah, they, they caused me quite a bit of grief. It's, it's great not to have to get them strapped up anymore. Yeah. Jeez, um, imagine the elastoplast rolls you went through yeah. in your career, mate. You could have yeah. kept them in business. Yeah. So, um no, look, that's, it's great not having to get strapped up, but what's been really pleasing is that if you stop trying to play an elite sport, if you've got joints that are a little bit banged up, once you just ask them to do normal everyday things, yeah. they actually cope really well. It's just... Um, so the body's okay now? body's great, which I didn't think it would be. It probably took a year to get back to a level where it felt comfortable. Um, but I, I don't go to a physio, I don't get any treatment, um, and I exercise a lot. So it's great. Because like, you wrote in your book that you, you, at that stage, so it's a couple of years ago, you, you, you knew that you weren't going to be able to bowl a cricket ball to your son yeah. Oscar and a few things like that. And I read that and the first thought in my head was, wow, is it worth it? Yeah, oh, well, yes. I mean, I can't bowl, I can't serve in tennis or, you know, I can't swim longer than 100 metres freestyle. Because of your shoulders. Because of my shoulders. So and how's that sit with you now? That's fine. Right. That's just, fine. That, that's it. Yeah. Um, would have been really hard if I couldn't run. 
I think. Mm. Which um, happens to a lot of footy players. Yeah, a lot of guys can't run. So I, I, I can run fine. I'm really enjoying getting on the bike. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, bowling cricket balls at your kids probably a bit of a curse as well. I, I guess, know? yeah, it's not I'll the just repre- have to bat. No, I'll well, just have yeah, to bat. Yeah. That's, the, that's the moral of the story. Well, I guess from where <laughs> I see it, it's not the representation is you can't bowl. It's that for someone that was so physically capable to know that the next 40 years of your life you might not have the capabilities of a normal person after mm. you were elite. I don't know how that would sit with me. I think I, th- I thought I'd be a lot more capacitated than what I, okay. what I am. Well, that's good. That's great. That's good that you're out and about. So it gets to the draft. Um, you're a Melbourne boy. I'm presuming you don't want to go to Sydney or Brisbane or Adelaide or Perth. Yeah, well, it was really just – it was just going to be um, West Coast or Fremantle. The way the draft was, the top six picks were – between four teams okay. and I knew I was going to – I didn't even speak to a club that had a pick after pick six. Okay. So I was pretty confident yeah. it was going to be one of those, um, one of those clubs. Um, and what's that process like? So you go to West Coast or tell me about your experience with the West Coast Eagles. As a, as a young kid listening to this thing, well, I might get drafted in a couple of years. What, what, what do you go through? Well, I think it's all very different now um, for starters. But – and I'm, I'm – I didn't go to draft camp. Um, I was invited but chose not to go because I just had a shoulder reco recently and I just had no interest in sitting around twiddling my thumbs for four days. That would have been perceived well in the footy world. Yeah, and, and if I had a young bloke doing that, I'd, I'd make the same judgments. Um, but I've never had a strong desire to do things that I don't see a great point in doing. No. Um, so that was my decision and... I went to the state screening, so the tests that I could do, I could still do a beep test because it didn't involve sprinting, so I did that at the state screening. And then I spoke to the clubs. Um, I'd already been speaking to them before the draft camp, so West Coast would come around with their recruiting managers. I think there was two of them that I'd, I'd chat to and we'd just have a general chat. They'd meet the folks, have about, a chat to about them. About life or about footy or...? Like... Yeah, a bit of everything. Um, just trying to suss you out. It wasn't overly in-depth. Okay. And then... There was maybe another one of them which was a bit more in-depth by in-depth saying what which player do you hope to play like. Um, they try and draw conclusions from that that you'll end up being what you want to be. And who do you want to play like? Well, my answer used to flip. flip no, who is your favourite player, okay. I would say. And my answer used to change all the time. I didn't sort of have one. So sometimes it was Tony Lockett. Sometimes it was... Um, who else was running at the time? I don't know. I, I do remember it was Rupert Bathyrus when I spoke to Fremantle. Well, that would have thrown a cat And that really, I think that really flustered them. Rupert Bathyrus was at Corvo Grammar recently. Right. Uh, Journeyman. Journeyman. And yeah. so they make the link that Had you want to Had a bit of a crack and there was some eyebrows raised right. and I think they thought if we're going to spend free aid pick four, pick four on someone that's going to play 48 games yeah. and crack in but, you know. That's it. Maybe not overly polished. Yeah. Um, not sure that's what we're after. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what conclusions they were going to draw when I said no. it was Tony Lockett. Yeah. You know, what they think I was going to start clotheslining <laughs> blokes and kicking Anchor 100 point. goals a year. That's exactly right. um, So anyway. So, so you, you get drawn out. Um, I don't know. I guess that's a tough time for well, – so I've got young kids and I, I dread the day that they walk out the door. I, I dread the day that they don't think that I'm the best thing in the world. Like, I, that's – that's me. Like, mm. I guess for your mum and dad, um, it's like, yeah, and you'll appreciate this now, being a father, mm. their the, the, the child is being ripped away from them when 
if he was staying in Melbourne, he probably would have lived at home for another three or four years. He, I don't know. Was it like that or not? That's how I would be. I think it kids. was like that for them. Yeah. It's, it's not, not something we you, spoke about at the time. And you wouldn't the, have realised No, I'm sort of excited to be on a new adventure and fired up to try and make my way in the footy world. And the last thing they'd ever do is, you know, want to have load any guilt onto me about, um, you know, me following my dreams. So, but I think particularly the old man, because we'd spend a lot of time at home, we'd play pool a lot every night or just, you know, talk crap. The abruptness of it, I think, was um, a real challenge for him. And just all of a sudden there's all this time, you know, there's a couple of hours a night when we're mucking around playing pool or, or whatever. Um, you know, there's a, a, a void there that you haven't been building up to. I think usually when kids move out of home, probably happens over a couple of years. Sometimes Absolutely. they move out for a few months, move back home, or they move out but they're still eating meals and getting their washing done at home, whatever it may be. You're just ripped out. Yeah, the abruptness of it, I think, was a real challenge for them. Um, well, I know it was a real challenge for them, but, yeah, that, that's, that's life, I guess. You were rocking that... Um, I was looking at the photos in your book. Jeez, that was... <laughs> Interesting, Mo. You it was horrendous. Well, to horrendous. roll that out on draft day when the whole country is going to see you, you must look back at that. And I don't know if you have many career regrets, but I reckon that's got to be one it's of them. It's right up there. It just looks like Milo sitting <laughs> on the top lip. It was, um, it was just shocking. So there, there were some errors. And I'm struck by how well the young blokes talk now. Yeah, they're when they're really drafted, cool. they all say the same boring answers that you meant to say. And, yep. you know, I, I was on one-word answers yeah. for the first 18 months. Yep. Um, and just no polish at all. And, and the moustache combined with a one-word answer is, is, is an especially bad combination. Next week's episode of the Howie Games, an absolute treat for me and I hope it is for you. It features legendary Australian sports broadcaster from the Seven Network, Bruce McAvaney. My life could have gone one of two ways, I reckon. If I'd stayed in the public service, I'd be unfulfilled. I'd be probably a heavy gambler and a heavy drinker and frustrated. Um, I'd still have an innate happiness about me because I've always had it. It's what I was born with, but I'd be unfulfilled. Um, so how lucky am I, eh? Now, just before we get back to Juddy, MJ and I, in conjunction with Podcast One, are putting together a completely new podcast series. It's about sport, but very, very different to the Howie Games. She's been a big undertaking, to say the least, but we're stoked with how it's coming along. We'll give you a few more details in coming weeks, so keep an ear out for it. Same bat time, same bat channel. Okay, back to Juddy. So you get to West Coast. Who's your first game of footy against? Uh, For the Eagles. For the Eagles. First preseason game was against Carlton right. at what was then Optus Oval. Optus Oval, well, okay, yeah. Wasn't it? So Prinny Park, Icon, Icon Park, Park yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the first ever one. And your first senior game? Collingwood at the MCG. And your memories round of that? Round two. Uh, my memories what, of that. What happened round one? Didn't get picked? Didn't get picked. Who did you play? Played Waffle. How many games did you play in the Waffle? Played one. Right. How'd that go? And reminded, reminded coaches that, that they didn't show any faith in me. Right. And, and why should I show any faith back in them? Hang around. When, you know? <laughs> How'd you go that in the Waffle? Uh, good. Good. Uh, kicked four. Okay. Had a win. Right. That doesn't matter. So doesn't you matter right. when you're playing in the undergrades, what happens with the result, Howie. You know it's that. all about you at that yeah, point, Juddie. all about me. And got put down as having 15 tackles, which was interesting. Fifteen? Because I, I didn't. Right. But... Anyway, got put down there, so that You take it. Yeah, it's, it's helped for the... So which waffle team was that? East Perth. So you played one game ever. One game there. Right. Yeah. 
And then uh, and wouldn't have played round two, but Mark Miranda, West Coast had a really good win round one, and then Mark Miranda hurt his back quite severely, which ended up leading to his retirement. Um, so he got the call up for round two. And were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you? I don't. You don't strike me as a man that'd be terribly concerned about it all. No, I think. I think um, being left out of round one, even though I didn't deserve to play round one, I think part of me was like in that prove wrong sort of mode, which sort of decreases your nerves, I reckon. Mm. Um, So I wasn't really nervous. No, I was really excited that it was at the MCG because it felt familiar and I had a lot of good memories going to watch there. Um, Who was your first opponent? Chad Rintoul, I reckon. Okay. But I just felt ready. Like when I was in... The under-16 AIS Academy, a lot of those guys that I was, who were the same age as me but had birthdays in the first half of the year had already been drafted a year before. So I'd been watching them play for 12 months already before I was even drafted. And all those guys you could benchmark yourself against and say, well, I can play as well as him or I can play better than him and he's playing AFL footy. Mm. So having that experience for 12 months um, just felt like I, I just wanted to get out there. It wasn't... A, that sort of quelled the internal debate as to if or not, whether or not I could be good enough to a certain extent because I already knew guys that were good enough and was confident I could play against them. So how many games in did you feel like a genuine part of the team where you weren't playing to think, right, if I'll get 10 more touches here, I'll stay in the side? I reckon it wasn't really until the end of the first year where I didn't feel that I'd be two bad games away from being dropped. Okay. But once the first year was over, I felt, you know, I've got a spot. In the team. Again, from the outside looking in, um, I'll ask you about some of the players, but we don't want to get too bogged down in footy, to be honest. It looked like at that stage, those years at the West Coast early doors, where you started to become a really strong player, and it looked just fun. Like, footy yeah. looked like fun. The, even the way you played, it was this bright and breezy, I'll just get the ball, I'll run, I'll bounce, I'll have a shot for goal. It was like the way we play footy at school. Yeah, it was exactly how it felt. Was it? Just fun. Not nearly as many tactics back then mm-hmm. as there are now. Not nearly as many setups. Still some, but you know, not a whole book that you had to remember. So the amount of thought that was required during the game was was much less than it is now. Um, and it really was, yeah, just just work your ass off and and play instinctively was was how it felt. Um, and, and you were still of that approach that if I'm working harder than these guys back to you being an athlete, then I'll be able to succeed? That didn't really come till again, the end of the first year. So when players get drafted now, they don't do the same amount of training as the rest of the team because their bodies are deemed to be not up to it because they're still relatively young. How'd that sit with you? So I found that really hard to, to cop at the time because I'd done so much athletics training that the pre-season running... You know, it was, it was hard but not unachievable by any stretch of the imagination, whereas some of the other guys that didn't have that athletic background, it really was unachievable. They, they were going to take three or four years to build up to be able to run at that level. Um, and because I had this belief that the harder you work, the better you'll be, working less hard than people I already wasn't as good at yeah. was quite anxiety-provoking. So um, at the end of the first year... I just decided that I'd write my own program and, and take a bit more control over what I was doing. Away from the club? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's what I did. I've always been big on being able to um, not relying on other people. 
too much. Um, so even at, I would never have my boots brought to the game by the boot stutter, uh, the, pro- the property steward. I wouldn't even have my shorts brought to the game. I'd take my own shorts, my own socks, my own boots, because if anyone was going to forget them, I wanted it to be me. I didn't want the property steward to have a mare one day and forget my boots. <laughs> and then I'm going, well... Um, so, yeah, so I decided to take more responsibility of my own training program, um, take my diet to a much more anal sort of level. Um, I think just had the realisation that in football, probably any pursuit you have in life, uh, but in, in football, it's not just what you're doing at the club that, that has an impact. Essentially, everyone in the competition has the same hours in the day. Um, it's up to you to use those hours as effectively as you possibly can and to do more than what everyone else is doing in those hours if you want to improve more rapidly than them. So when you're talking about diet, you said when you know, you're anal about your diet, at your most, what are you eating and what are you not eating and how focused are you on it? So the funny thing was that even what I was doing, it wouldn't be best practice now, but it was a really clear plan then and, and, and it worked. I had no, no fat on me, yeah. um, but it was high carbohydrate, high sugar and just low fat. Just nothing in the house had more than 97, wasn't 97% fat free right. or better. But so like I wouldn't eat avocado, I wouldn't eat salmon because they've got high fats, even though they're mm. monounsaturated fats and considered good for you. Um, so that was... That was the diet I was I was running with. And did you get confidence in the fact that you were sacrificing, whether it was right or wrong, you were sacrificing th- these things so it would be good for your football, so it was good for your football? Yeah, I think so. So I just liked the feeling lining up next to the person I was going to play on in that day. And it was a bit different football then. It wasn't a whole team zone. You actually had an opponent in the midfield that you would be on for the whole game or if you were going really well, it would be two quarters and then move someone else onto you. So there was those one-on-one battles all across the field and I really liked the feeling of looking at that person at the start of the game and knowing that they couldn't have done what I'd done. Um, I I just didn't think it was possible that they would would have made the same sacrifice. And even things like I wouldn't take a Panadol then if I had a headache because that was a challenge that I could, you know, everything was just this competition. You could overcome the pain in your head. Well, no, or deal with it. So that's that's the challenge. Um, Wow. So it was just a strange way to live and very different from how I'd live today. Like it's very hard to recognise that sort of person, that level of intensity now. Um, I think that's what we don't realise. Sac- well, we see you guys run out on a Saturday and we think, oh, he's trained a couple of times during the week, he's ready to go. And that really struck me in your book is the sacrifices you do to get out there and give yourself confidence to play on the weekend. But even a night out on the piss would be justified mentally as, well, this, you've got to do this for team building exercises. This is important to connect with teammates. You get up hungover and hammer yourself with extra 400s and what a great chance to run when you're hungover because how hard is that going to be? Okay. <laughs> life was, it's, looking back, what a draining way to live. Well, that's my, is, um, it, is it hard to live your life I like that? I think it is a very draining way to live, yeah. So when you go out to a restaurant, um, oh, I... I eat a pretty disciplined life, you know, I, I eat reasonably disciplined, but, yeah. you know, and so there's some things I don't look on the menu at, I just don't even consider them, but there'll be a lot of things, you're out for dinner with your beautiful girlfriend at the time, you're like, well, I'm not going to have that, I'm not going to have that, it'd be hard to live like that and live with someone like that, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so, and it was, 
for me, when I, you know, I made a conscious point really late in my footy career that I just wasn't going to be so crazy anymore. Um, and just that, that idea of rediscovering menus and what you feel like eating mm. versus what you should be eating uh, took quite a considerable amount of time because for so long I, I just hadn't been listening to what my actual desire was around food. It was just, this is what I need. Um, so that's been an interesting an interesting sort of experience. It's been interesting watching Beck too, who, I mean, Beck will, will eat anything she wants, from chocolate to cake to... It'd be interesting seeing all these articles about, oh, she must be anorexic yeah. or imagine how crazy she'd be with her diet. Like, there's only one person living in the house with an eating disorder, right. it was me. You know? <laughs> um, and it wasn't a disorder, but it was just... Yeah, a disciplined, regimented lifestyle. Just crazy. Um, so where she first come into the equation? Where did you meet your beautiful I wife? I met her you know? at... Um, the Cottesloe Hotel. You didn't still have that Mo, did you? The Mo was gone, roll. thankfully. Um, what about that little thing you used to the roll tickler, under your lid? The tickler was around. <laughs> we weren't going to the full name. <laughs> but the tickler was well and truly alive. It, well, if you got past that point, you must have been okay. Well, <laughs> the first moments, because um, I, as I said, I didn't want this to be all about football. The first moments you lay eyes on this girl, what do you see? If you, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, and I think I touched it in my book, but I just saw someone who was incredibly attractive and, and pretty drunk. Right. And that was my sweet spot, Howie. You know, like, <laughs> that sort of worked. So um, it was a Sunday, so I wasn't drinking much. Uh, I was there with Curry, who was flat. We agreed we were going to pop down to the cot on the Sunday. Curry had had a big Friday and Saturday night. Dan- Daniel, Daniel Kerr. Kerr. Yep. And the last thing he wanted to do was was go out on a Sunday again after a, a couple of nights already. But I've been sitting at home all, all weekend by myself, so I was like, you're coming. Uh, so he came along. We met Beck. Um, and nothing too full-on happened, Howie, but that was, that was sort of where we first met. And I had a girlfriend at the time, which, as you can understand, complicates matters. Uh, slightly. But, um, <laughs> look, Beck and I stayed in touch and then when I eventually parted company with the, um, the other girl, eventually Beck and I got together. I have a, a beautiful girl at home by the name of Erica and I, we talk a lot but I think the moment I fell in love with her, I can picture it quite clearly in my head and she'd made me a bowl of soup and I spilt it everywhere across the floor and the table and everything and I thought oh, she's going to crack it here and she just laughs and don't worry about it and it's a silly thing but to me that was like this this could be the girl that I really want to be with can you get it to a moment like that it's a hard question to ask yeah I've got a couple of early moments initially I was just thinking you know this girl's a, a belter let's <laughs> she's let's hot. run with this um There's nothing wrong with it and and then I just remember her making me laugh a couple of times at a, a we'd go get a granita. I wasn't drinking coffee back then. Right. Um, in Leaderville, ice and sugar that felt that fell in the no fat category. Okay, Howie. Yeah. Um, and just being able to have someone have a, a woman or a girl or woman then whatever you are at twenty mm-hmm. uh, make me laugh was a bit unusual, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then probably over a Scrabble game early. Scrabble. Which, again, is a bit odd to be playing at your 20. But um, I just remember dominating this Scrabble game at the start and just it was almost an una, unattainable lead. I was up by 80 points or whatever and I started to have pity on this, this poor model who was clearly just couldn't match my your intellect. <laughs> weighty, weighty intellect. Right. Um, and then I thought, I'm just going to take it easy. I just started putting out a couple of three-letter words just to, so I wouldn't embarrass her. 
And with that, she had a bit of a run with the letters and a couple of Qs and Zs later, and and she's uh, and she's hit the lead. Oh no! And oh. Uh, and so yeah, like Beth, yeah, she's a she's a serious operator, Beck. So I think there are a couple of early things that um, yeah, maybe realised we we're dealing with someone who's a little bit had a little bit more depth than just uh, just her beauty. And her beauty was obviously on display at the Brownlow, and that's when the world becomes to know you as a couple. Um, yeah, I remember seeing that and thinking, um, what did I think? I'm not sure she was treated appropriately. I don't know. On the coverage, it's, it's a long time ago now, and it's sort of, uh, it was obviously a great night for you guys because it turned out to be, you know, wow. Mm. Yeah, I just remember being confused as to why she hadn't bought a whole dress. You know, we had a good year. <laughs> Can afford a, a whole one. I don't know why she's bought a half a one. But um, so, what do you see when you see that dress? Because you pick her up I before. I think we all know what, what I saw, Howie. Right, Same yeah, thing well, you do. saw. You, know? you do. <laughs> what did you think? Did you? Well, I think neither was really. <laughs> I mean, everyone cares what people think, but yeah. we're not. We're not sort of ruled by it. Um, she looked great. She really, looked like she, you know, she was a kid. She was twenty. She um, phenomenal. Twenty-one. It was a bit. You looked your usual awkward self on the red carpet, like you know what we do. I was growing in my looks, how? Yes. And um, yeah, so it was. You know, my main thought was, this is great. I'm taking such a crack into the Brownlow. That was about as in depth as I went with it. And then it was, this is great. I just won the Brownlow, and you know, then getting up the next day and going, I feel pretty hungover. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't analysing it too closely. When you look, you look back, it was sort of significant for us in a sense that we both became public property to a certain degree Um, and it was almost the start of wasn't the start of the wags but you know that was I don't remember a lot of attention that same level of attention being drawn to to um the wags before that no and what's life like when you are public property which you still are today but in in your heyday um you know, your high profile and your beautiful wife is high profile. It makes her an even greater profile, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I found it really hard. Um, it, not hard like i got cancer hard, but no, I, I, I found it challenging, particularly in Perth. Um, we just got to the stage where, you know, as a 23-year-old, we felt like going out to dinner mm. but couldn't be bothered because we'd know that we wouldn't really have much of a chance to talk to each other because we'd have people coming up wanting to have a chat or... On a napkin sign, I reckon that was before iPhones, yeah. which were just a disaster for sporting personalities. Yeah, my word, they were. Um, but there was still that that level of intrusion, and people were great. Like Perth people are wonderful, but um, sometimes you just want to go out for a meal with your partner and just talk to them and just hang out. Um, and that was probably once we were making decisions like not going out to dinner and just getting takeaway and eating at home. When you're in your early mid twenties. Gee, sooner or later you've got kids and, yeah. <laughs> and it's a three-week planning operation Correct. before you can go out for dinner. So Correct. it just sort of started to feel like it was a bit unsustainable. So did you come up with a plan as to how to deal with that and have you sort of followed that plan through? Well, it, it does end. So it, it just ends for people. Like it's ended for me. When was it at its worst? Oh, last year or two in Perth. Right. Yeah, it was at a fever pitch. I found Melbourne, I, I barely made decisions I mean, in Melbourne, I, there were some places I wouldn't go because I knew they'd be full of people who were really pissed. Yeah. But other than that, I didn't really tailor my lifestyle to stop that intrusion very much because in Melbourne, there's so many different footballers to share the limelight. Mm. Plus, you've got musicians and actors and Melbourne Storm players. 
There's um, more. There's just more. There's yeah. not that same urgency when people see a high-profile athlete to mark the occasion as there, as there can be in places like Perth or Adelaide or Geelong. Um, so it, it died down a bit moving back to Melbourne. And then by the time I, my last couple of years in footy, it was fine. There's a new player who's flavour of the month and, you know, people will still come up and have a chat. And, and by that stage, it's, it's, it's quite enjoyable. It's not... Uh, a burden. It doesn't feel as laborious as it does when it's, it's so constant. And winning a Brownlow, does it, did that make... What was your initial... Not, what do you think about it now? What did you think about it then? When you realised, bang, I'm going to win the Brownlow medal, did it mean a lot to you, much to you, nothing to you? It felt really exciting. Um, a mixture of emotions initially. Initially it was a bit of embarrassment because I'd always... I'd never regarded myself as as good as the players who'd won that award in the past. Um, but then just excitement and... Um, a heap of alcohol and <laughs> you know and whatnot and, and then today um it just doesn't really come up in my thoughts where are all. they you've got two now where are two they? in the sock drawer in the sock drawer um, they literally in the sock drawer without order they are okay. they are yeah but i'm waiting for someone to burg the house and right and grab them right. um insurance yeah i declare the winner of the 2010 brownlow medal chris judd from the carton football club Thanks very much to, obviously, Rebecca. Touched on it before. Um, but thanks for uh, all your assistance during the year. Um, you didn't give me a hope tonight, and uh, I showed you. Um, <laughs> so my whole 40 career now, it feels, um, it feels special, but it doesn't feel important. Yeah. You know, I guess I'm lucky enough to have kids that feel really important and a wife who's still with me, that's really important. Um, and the memories over from footy were really special, but they belonged to sort of another person in, in, a, in a way. Funny you say that because back when you were at that time and West Coast, I was doing the footy for Channel 10 out on the boundary and we have to come out and interview the player and we'd often speak to you and I always seemed to feel, rightly or wrongly, that A, you didn't want to be doing the interview and B, that you almost wanted people to know that there was more to you than just being a football. I could be wrong there, but you were always a bloody hard man to interview after a game. Um, not because you wouldn't ever speak in cliches, yeah. but it was like, oh, what am I going to ask this bloke? Again, where I don't think that he's bloody far too clever for me and I'm going to get stuck. You were a hard man to interview after a game of footy. I just... Um, you weren't prickly, don't get me wrong. No. You, you, weren't, you didn't pull away. You were always happy to do it, but it was like, mm, I don't know where this is going to go. Yeah, I just had no... My life was so black and white then that I just had no desire to do anything that wasn't going to either be be really beneficial to myself or the footy club. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah. so that that would have fallen into that category. Um, It wasn't going to help the footy club because West Coast is a huge club. They don't need publicity. It wasn't really going to help me. Um, And it was just – my desire would have just been – I want to get to the rooms and enjoy that 15 minutes after a win, which is the best bit of playing a team sport. Oh, that's um, how it felt too. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't like I was desperate not to do media, no, no, no. but it was like I knew it was something that had to be done, um, which is not really correct because when you get older, you have a bit more of a broader view of how it all works. And essentially... Um, you know, you're really employed by the TV stations yeah. as a player which you would understand, and I understand now, but back then it was very, it was a very narrow focus. Um, 
just centred around winning enough games to hopefully winning a premiership. Um, and once that was achieved, hopefully winning another. Um, to win the first one, you had to lose one by... What did you lose the first one by? I forget if they were one or four point. I think the second one was one, was a... F- First one, four, maybe. Oh, I just sure. remember Leo. Oh, close. I just remember Leo Barry, a star, and you both getting beaten at the an amazing grand final. One last roll of the dice for the oh. Eagles! Leo Barry, you star! Final. So the siren goes that day, and you just lost. Is it? What's the feeling? Uh, empty and slight amount of stress as to if you get the opportunity again, but mostly just a resolve around we're such a young group mm. and it improved so rapidly. It'd come from seventh or eighth to a kick away from winning it. Um, it just felt like it would happen. You got, you got you in the Norm Smith that year? Yes. Which is unusual again. There's not many blokes do that in a losing grand final. Obviously Gary Ablett did it and maybe did Nathan Buckley do it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And did that mean well, when they're giving you best on ground, you've lost? I can't imagine that's a huge. Just pat didn't on the feel back. good or bad. Just, yeah, okay. just didn't change it. What it did do later on is you don't have that same embarrassment that when you play really poorly in a big game. So the disappointment is the same for everyone. But when you've really played poorly in a big game, there's a an element of embarrassment that comes along with that because you've really contributed to that loss more significantly than others. You feel embarrassed. You do. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have that. You don't have the shame, um, but you still have just as much disappointment as the bloke that had a stinker. And then a year later you win it by a similar margin um, and there was a lot of talk about you on the dais that you weren't showing emotion. It went back to me with Liesl Jones when she was criticised, won a silver medal, and then Cuzzy was going bananas. Well, he got criticised for too much emotion, didn't he? And I sort of was going to say that, that, you know, the world can be a bloody imperfect place, but uh, the siren goes and you've won the grand final... Is it everything you ever thought it would be when you first started playing footy or not? Yeah, I reckon it was, but not all in that one moment. It was um, probably took about a week to get a a bigger, wider depth of emotions attached to it all. When did it hit? It didn't hit me till um, about a week later after I'd had a shoulder reconstruction and was sitting at home at my parents' house and I was just sort of elated. You know, by myself. It was really strange. Um, Up until then, it's just complete exhaustion, well, for me, complete exhaustion post-game and relief. And then you're just boozing and carrying on, and that that week goes by pretty quickly. I was booked in for a shoulder reco on Wednesday or Thursday, um, or around about that. Maybe it was a a couple of days later. But you can imagine that all all happens pretty quickly. You don't have a a lot of time to sort of scratch yourself. And then... um, it wasn't until I was just sitting at home at my parents' house, recovering from surgery, um, and was just genuinely elated that it just felt like whatever happened from then on in my footy career was going to be a bonus because I'd done, you know, what, you to do. what I was desperate to do. So then the natural question revolves around the Eagles and illicit substances and premierships. I understand it's a headline grabber, and you're also aware that there were mistakes made through that time and when you make a mistake it doesn't pay to try and justify your way out mm. of it you're better off copying it and, and moving on and I guess that's where it sort of sits with me and, and I've had this discussion with everyone I've done it's that this is not about headlines so it's the last thing uh, it doesn't interest me going into a headline style scenario were you ever aware that you thought the club had a problem or not never to the extent that it was right no no way and and even 
the people closest to those with the biggest problems had no idea just how deep it was. Um, but hindsight's, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and clearly if um, everyone knew how big an issue it was, things would have been duff, diff, done differently. Mm. But it's also important to remember that, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, defend myself here. As a 23-year-old, I wasn't qualified to cure people's drug addiction well, or their, mental, their serious thought. mental health issues. Um, that's not my skill set. No. And even people whose skill set it is, that's still a really tricky issue and, and one that we haven't cracked the code for what the formula is to, to assist people with. So, look, sometimes people's expectations of what others can do to assist in that situation is, is unreasonable as well. Do you worry about some of the blokes you played footy with? Do you, like... Um yeah, I've got mates that I worry about because they're going down the wrong path. Do you have mates that you've played footy with over 20 years that you could wish you could help more or is it just life? Yeah, of course. I, but I don't, um, I don't think their wellness is reliant on anything I could do. Right. I'm really clear on that. Yeah, okay. Um, but I'll do whatever I can to help. Yep. But I, I think I have a really clear understanding of the limitations that that help can, can provide. So you go to the Carlton Footy Club, um, which was a big deal in its time because you were looking at which club you wanted to go to. Um, I never understood why that was a big deal because why would you want to go to a club that you didn't think had any chance to help you doing what you were trying to do? You, you get to Carlton. Is there much of a difference between Carlton and West Coast? It's a huge difference. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're only a young bloke again at this stage too. So, so yeah. what are the differences and what can you try and do about them? So I thought they'd be very similar because um, young groups, early draft picks at both clubs, um, but the Carlton been beaten down for quite a long time by then and just the intrinsic drive for players to achieve was, was really limited and the, the goal, how high people were prepared to dream was, was really low. You know, a high-achieving player would have dreams of getting a three-year contract as opposed to premiership success because it's, if you're finishing down or near the bottom of the ladder regularly, thinking about or talking about winning a premiership seems sort of stupid. So how does that hit you when you, you know what's possible and what the, your ultimate is here and their ultimate is nine rungs below you? Is that frustrating or is that an impossible mountain to climb or is it do we chip away one step at a time here? Yeah, look, it was frustrating. I think I had the feeling that you know, people generally overestimate what they can achieve in the short term and underestimate what they can achieve in the long term. So that sort of idea was, was chipping away at me personally. Mm. Um, but I sort of had some realisations late in my career that I really would have changed the approach that I took to try and shift that, the dial in that behaviour. In what way? Well, things like mandating people to do more work, I don't feel as it, um, actually drives a response you're after where people become intrinsically driven. Essentially, they just do more work to appease someone else. Yep. And that has, it's counter-effective. Um, so just to talk about, you know, I just would have really simplified it. I, would have, um, I think the most important thing you can do is the type of players you bring into your football club and the leadership group could have had a more active involvement in list management back then. Um, what type of player do you need in a footy club? Just need people that are driven and, right. and want to succeed. Because even if they don't contribute anything off the, on the field because they're not good enough, they still contribute to the culture really well. Do they have to be as driven as you? No, no. Um, 
but they've got to be driven and they've, they've just got to care about that success. That's the key thing. Like I look at Toby Green now. Yep. Um, so you look at your rascals that you play with, your, you know, your rogues, if you like. Um, some of those guys are the best guys you can play with and then some of them are the worst. And whether they're a good rogue or a bad rogue to play alongside really comes down to how much they care for the team. Um, and so like a Toby Green, he's had some issues off field and made some mistakes, but you can see by the way he plays and by default the way he prepares that he really cares about that team succeeding. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, you don't need a, a group of teetotalers or everyone to be as driven as the most driven guy, but you need everyone's care to be really significant in, in what that club's trying to achieve. Um, so look, that, and then, you know, rather than mandating, right, we need to, everyone needs to do an extra session or what's your extra session this week, moving away from that minutiae, if you like, and talking about overarching ideal of why winning a premiership is, is so special and so important, and then let, letting people decide if they want to contribute to that or not by their actions, and if they're not contributing to it, resell them and get <laughs> new blokes in that, that want to. Um, that was the sort of learnings late in my career when I was you know, long after I was captain and, and whatnot. More of Chris in a moment. Thanks again for all the emails at the thehowiegames.hotmail.com. I am doing my best to reply to them all. And this week's shout-out goes to Rob, a Geelong fella who's new to podcasts, but who emailed to say he's listening to the show whilst on his new walking routine where the big fella is aiming to get back in shape. So good on you, Robbie. Hope the fitness is coming along and you're enjoying the show. By the way, a special offer this week on the Howie Games. If you tell one person about the show and explain to them how to download it, you get to feel like you've done a good deed. So go on, do it. It'll help the show grow and ensure we can make more episodes. Last week's episode of the Howie Games was with the king of cycling commentary, Phil Liggett, a man that could have ended up spending his entire life shoveling elephant poo. And so I moved on from the zookeeping after hitting an elephant on my bike. I rode to work every day, but I didn't know that before the public allowed in, uh, it probably still applies in most zoos, many of the animals they let out. Uh, they don't let the lions out or the predators, but, I mean, the elephant's a fantastic weeding machine. You take him round the back and he'll shovel all those nettles in one hit. And so round the back of the tea hut yep. was the Indian elephant with his keeper, uh, and the keepers are in love with their animals, by the way. Of course. They, they, they're, they're, they're kids. And the elephant was working away around the back of the tea hut. I zoomed round on my bike, hit the back of the elephant, fell off. And the, the keeper, I remember, he pulled the ear of the elephant down and said, look at this silly sod. And the elephant just trumpeted. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, my bike was bent. So, so soon after I left, not for any reason other than uh, there was no, I was, I was going to be shoveling shit for the rest of my life. That was basically it. Yeah, good storyteller, the old Phil. Go back and have a listen if you missed it. Back to Juddy in a moment. But first... All right, back to Chris. So were you talking late in your career? We spoke about the start when it was free and easy and you were playing footy in school. I had this, speaking to a guy on the radio yesterday and I was telling him about your book, um, Kobe Stevens was talking to, and I had no understanding of what you were doing during the week for the last five years of your career to get out on the park on a weekend. Just explain to the listeners of Howie Games the stuff you were doing away from the club and how rooted your body actually was at various times and you're still playing footy I, I didn't and we, we never see that mate because we just see you run yeah. out and there's that old expression well if he's out on the ground he's right to go yeah so I, I um, the first bit of my career came really easy it was just that simple formula work harder improve um, most of the blokes you were playing alongside were doing the same very little I didn't feel like it was really earned um, 
other than through the hard work, but it wasn't really earned through the level of planning or, or thinking that went into it. Uh, whereas the second half of, the, of my footy career felt like the opposite. It was, it was really well earned through planning and, and whatnot. And my last year at West Coast, um, I had some osteitis pubis that became reasonably significant. I'd get three local anaesthetics pre-game under ultrasound and then some more at half time. So I didn't play after about around 10 or 11 without local anaesthetic in my groin. How many anaesthetics to get you out there? Three before and and two or three at half time. Just to get you out there. Yeah. And I was playing like a busted asshole. Because you were, mate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that really did, did a lot of damage. And, and this is not a pot, um, medical staff that I was given the option not to do that, obviously, because it, it wasn't really helping the team. It certainly wasn't helping me, but I was, I was really clear I wanted to, to keep doing that, which was moronic. Um, but there was a real cost for the rest of my footy career from that last um, half of the year yeah. doing that. I mean, I, even when if I tried to train, I'd get a jab in my groin to train. To train. Um, I had about eight quarter zones in that year. So you'd look back at that now and think, what was I doing? But I can understand as a 23-year-old wanting to play footy, then it, you, I don't know if you've really got a choice. You're just going to do it, aren't you? You do. And, you, and the sort of cultural heroes of the time, I used to look at some of the things Cuz would do to his body. I, I remember him getting his ankle jabbed up for just about a whole year. You know, his ankle was mucked, you know, completely cooked, and he won the BNF that year, and it was a huge effort. It never got any publicity. But when that's your modelling, that's sort of... Mm. You know, he was the captain at the time. You thought, what a great thing our captain's doing. Look how stuffed his ankle is. And he's out there. So there, that's your cultural modelling. It, it was, um, you know, probably spoke of just wanting to try and do the best you could for the group. And we were still really in premiership mode. Yeah. There's a top four team. Um, so that's and, – and for me too, I knew I was going to leave at the end of the year. I didn't want there to be any question marks on how committed I was to – the group, but the byproduct of that was there's a huge personal cost um, on the body to go through that for the second half of the season. So from then I got to Melbourne and I'd become a bit of a victim in the end of that year because I was so sore and and um, just in terms of mindset, you know, woe is me, my groins are sore again. Right. Um, and I made the decision I didn't want to be a victim anymore um, in terms of mindset. So the victim mindset for me is someone that, doesn't have a plan, just feels like they've got no control over their surroundings and just sooks about their current lot. Um, and that's not what I wanted to be. So I came back to Melbourne, sought out a biomechanist. He was great. Um, He's actually doing some work with Hawthorne now. Hodgie does some stuff with him. A few blokes have done stuff with him over the years, Mark McGrath. And I'd see him at the start three times a week for sort of three hours a session. A big session, this is during pre-season, so you've already got a full mm-hmm. workload. And um, just from a mindfulness perspective, he was really good, really positive guy, great knowledge of the body. And we were just exploring. He didn't have the answers that were going to fix what I was going through, but it was about just exploring um, what could be done, what things would make me feel better, what things wouldn't. Um, and that was, that was important more than, more than anything because it was the first time it felt like, all right, here's the plan we're working towards, yeah. more so than these exercises are going to cure the issues I was having with my grinds. Um, and that was something that really was a, a pillar of how I played the second half of my career, whether it was yoga, Pilates, um, dry needling. I would, you know, I used to get dry needle just about every day. So they're just putting needles straight in there? Yeah, into different muscles. I would dry needle myself. Right. Um, I got needles at home, got the sharps box there. Just uh, 
Oh, and you put it into a certain spot and it yeah, leaves. Yeah, again, for the kids, don't yep. start dry handling yourself at home. But, um, yeah, I, I think when I was at um, was West Coast, it was really easy to say these are things I'm prepared to do that other footballers wouldn't be mm-hmm. in terms of workload or diet, things like that, because I couldn't train very much once I was at Carlton. It was harder to find things that I was prepared to do, costs I was prepared to pay that other people wouldn't. So things like needling yourself, essentially giving yourself some treatment whenever you needed it. Yeah. Um, I bought a reformer for my house so I could do Pilates at home whenever I wanted. Um, so that was where you were putting your efforts well, into? Well, that's all I could do. That was yeah. the only thing I could get that others potentially couldn't or what's, wouldn't be prepared to. What's the could... weirdest thing you ever did? You ever do anything like, you know, we sometimes read about strange things? There have been weird ones. but I, I mean, I, like needling... Some of the areas I needled were really... Like, I needled straight in my pelvis, like in the middle, you your urinary tract near there and, you know, whereas now I'm clear on the areas I'm happy to needle. You're having an anatomy book open while you're doing it. Not at the time. It was just like, this is sore, I'm not confident, bang. Right. Um, so that's really moronic. Whereas now it'll be like, I know there's no arteries around your ITB, so I'm happy to needle that. Calves are safe enough. Right. Um, but even, like, needling my traps, like your lung... He's really close to your, your yeah. traps. Um, so that's... That's weird enough for me. That's weird. I, I think that's weird enough for me. Yeah. Even the Mark McGrath, though, the guy I saw the biomechanist, yeah. we do three hours, we do sort of mostly yoga-based type exercises and we finish off with a sauna and he, we'd do this on the top floor of a office building where he'd work at and we'd slap this sort of orange, um, orange, I don't know, potion on. It was like a plant-based from pine trees that can live in 40 degree heat or 40 degrees below zero. Right. And so at the end of our session, we'd have this, it was three 15 minutes sauna, 45 minute sauna is bloody hard going, but we didn't be in this orangey sort of potion. And then in between, we'd have 15 minutes in the sauna, then we'd walk out on the rooftop, but all the other buildings around <laughs> it were higher. So all these office workers would be able to look down and there's two bald guys in their undies soaking in sweat, covered in orange sort of paint. And the stories you could write about that, you know. Um, Imagine that on the, that photo on the front page of Herald Sun. It's lucky the Daily Mail wasn't around yeah, then. Yeah, it would have been, you know, who knows what they would have come up with. But um, that was interesting. So when it all came crashing down, I was there at the footy that day when you did your knee, and it's still one of my favourite, it sounds funny, it's still one of my favourite memories of being at the footy is... Um, from my memory, you know, they put you on the cart and you went off past the Adelaide supporters and they cheered for you. Mm. Um, and I remember it was mentioned in commentary and I think that was a nice way of the footy crowd to try and say, you know, we all love you. So you, you go into the rooms there. What, what are your thoughts at that stage? Do you realise I'm, I'm done, I'm finished? Yeah, as soon as it happened, I just thought, well, that's that. And you, you've been building up to that for a couple of years. Um, and then I went down to the rooms. I mean, I, I just wanted to walk off, but they wouldn't stop the game. So... You wanted uh, to walk off because you knew that was it? Well, I didn't actually need the stretcher. I could walk. Right. But the game wouldn't stop. So I was saying to the umpire, we'll stop the game. My knee's stuffed. And he's like, well, we don't stop unless there's a stretcher. So I was like, oh, well, I'll call the stretcher then. So I ended up calling the stretcher out just because we were a man down. It was going to take me, you know, yeah, yeah, a few yeah. minutes to yeah. walk off the... The ground. So I walked down to the ground. As soon as I was down there, I think my folks were down there pretty much from the start. Oh, maybe I had the assessment first. 
I actually, I think I had the assessment with the physios first and we all knew what it was. And then the folks came down, they drove us to Vic House, just down the road. So Channel 7 cameraman waiting there, or Channel 7 cameraman waiting while we got in the car, sort of a couple of metres away, which again, that's, that's their job. And then they got to Vic House and they said, can we have an interview? I said, no. And they sort of froze and like, ooh. We're going to ask you anyway. <laughs> and then they said, are you concerned that what this means for your career? I said, yes. And then they said something else. Um, Does it feel sore? I was like, yes. And I'll, <laughs> So it's the full cycle of interviews. I was back to the 18-year-old. And that would, have been, that would have been exclusive on Seven Years Tonight, Chris Jard on yeah. his football future. That's... Yeah. Um, yeah. But I understood the, the game. That's the soap opera... Of footy. Um, so what was your emotion? Was it relief or A bit more relief than or... I would have thought. Yeah, okay. um, and a bit of sadness. Um, yeah, I think uh, part of me by then, like, the team was going no good. I was going no good. Um, and I was meant to retire the year before and I, I decided I didn't want to. So it was sort of a relief too that it was out of my hands now because I didn't want to do something stupid and try and go another year. Um, so yeah, look, that were the that were the major arching, major overarching emotions, um, and it just felt like the end of an era, um, you know, the end of a chapter in your in your life. Where's the life at now? What chapter you're into now? Next phase. I reckon I'm out of that phase of not knowing what's up and down when you stop playing professional sport. I reckon it probably took about six months. Six months to a year. Actually, probably a year. Did it? Yeah. And I reckon that's quick. I reckon that's really quick. Yeah. Without trying to pump myself up. No. Um, well, well, people that come out of the game that don't have as maybe many opportunities outside the game as you, I, I'm not sure they ever get over it. No. No, but it's still, it's still really hard. Like, I romanticised the real world a lot when I was playing footy. I, I craved being able to go to an office and think about things strategically or... You used to talk about an office, and I used to think, why the bloody hell would this bloke want to yeah, go sit in an office? Yeah, and I, so I did. I worked in funds management last year. Yeah. Worked with a great organisation. Um, you know, good culture, nothing wrong with any of it. But just the, the reality of sitting in an office all day, how horrible is that? Well, I don't know <laughs> like, why you would romanticise no. it. I've tried to avoid it for 20 years. Yeah, so, um, so that was just interesting. And I sort of knew that it wouldn't be... I knew that it wouldn't be as fulfilling as what football was, and I wasn't expecting it have the same level of fulfilment from it but I just wasn't expecting it to be um yeah what it was and, and maybe I thought it would be more stimulating than what it was um so then it just took me a while and I think the, the learnings was you don't have to live your life exactly how everyone else is expecting you to live it you know most people follow a pretty similar formula throughout their whole lives they sort of do school and they do uni then they get a big boy job and then they work too hard in the, th- the 30s and get divorced in their 40s or like hold a little bit of balance in their 30s and, and whatnot. And um, I was in a really lucky position to not have to do stuff that I didn't want to do. Yeah. So that was the step one. And then um, when you're playing professional sport, you're chasing a dream that's important to you, but that also is a dream that gets huge recognition from the public. Um, it, was, it just felt like now is the time to stop chasing that sort of recognition. I don't need to be the richest man mm. in the neighbourhood or um, anything like that. 
Um, it's just important to have a, a think about how do I want to set up my, my working week, what was going to make me happy and what was going to be the best for our, our family. Um, and once I started thinking like that, um, yeah, the pieces started to fall into place pretty nicely. And being a father, which you've done extraordinary amount of times in a short period of time, you've got four kids. Four kids, yeah. What, what does being a dad mean to you? Well, that's the name of the game. That's the... Is it? Yeah, it's magic. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be the biggest challenge that I face in my life. Yeah. Um, but the most rewarding one by far. And I, yeah, I think so many people now are trying to build important lives. You know, everyone wants to change the world and we get this messaging that you can change the world. And I really have this... I think people should take pressure off themselves from trying to do that so much. I think there's 7 billion people now. Mm. Relative is none of our existences are going to be that significant to anyone outside of our immediate family or really close social network. Um, and that's where my life sits. I don't think anything I'm going to do, be it as an athlete in the past or as a businessman in the future, is going to be significant. Um, but what I'm able to do with my kids is, is going to be really significant to me and, and hopefully to them in the future. So if you're reasonably financially well off, say you don't have to work, for example, why would you go to work? Uh, well, I've I got to work because I get bored. Right. I get you're really bored, bored okay. really quickly. So you don't have a pursuit away from work that you could lose yourself in, whether it be building model ships or swimming the atlantic ocean or no i'm really interested in investing right i I really like investing in micro cap stocks and yep working through that but that could make you a lot of that may mean in the end you have to go to work exactly you could all go and we're sitting here in an office that (laughs) you only had one chair and the office the office is a little bit sparse well you've got a chair (laughs) out of your boot so i could sit and i thought maybe his vesting is not going quite so well (laughs) exactly um so I really like that. I find it interesting. I find it stimulating because you're trying to predict the future. Yeah. Um, it's not really a numbers game, the things I invest in. It's, it's um, you know, the companies I invest in, most of them aren't profitable. It's a bit like venture capital investing, but right. with, with liquidity. You can sell it because it's yep. listed, whereas I was at a venture capital fund, which has no liquidity. Um, so that's interesting because I don't have a sector bias. If I'm investing in a healthcare company, I need to read up on that and learn about that. I'm investing in a tech company, Mm -hmm. likewise. I feel that's a a good challenge. It's pretty tangible to see if you've won or you lost because the stock's going up or it's going down. Um, And, yeah, look, I find that interesting, but it still doesn't give me the same level of reward as as footy did. And I'm doing it by my... do it alongside some other investors, but it's essentially an individual game. There's not that sense of camaraderie or, um, you know, trying to replace that feeling in a change rooms after a win, um, that 15 minutes, you're just not going to... I don't think you'll find that elsewhere in your life. Um, so I'm not searching for it. But what, when I was playing footy, I didn't have that... I didn't know what it was like to rock up to school at 3.15 and see your three-year-old sprint towards you and, you know, squeal with complete yeah. delight. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful thing. When you come to pick her up. And that dwarfs any reward I got from playing footy. Yeah. So there's just different things in different stages of your life. Reading your book, you, you've read a lot of different books. Um, I haven't asked this before on the Howard Games. What's your favourite book? Favourite book, Shantaram. Shantaram. Yeah. Old mate that ended up in India. Gregory Roberts. Yeah, it's yeah. a good book, huh? It's a ripper. Yeah. yeah. wonder how much of it's true. Well, yeah, I don't think that much of it could be true, but I had a mate that heard him talk live right. and just felt so convinced that it was after that talk that he felt it was 
well, the vast majority of it Brilliant book. was true. I, I, Either way, it when was he a, started going fighting and and oh, and yeah. started win? to think, well, is this is he really done yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what, what's a book that you've learned a lot from? Oh. I don't know. Like like the Outsider, like Albert yep. Camus, the Outsider. I really felt that had some interesting stuff in it. Um, Wherever you go, there you are, which is like a mindfulness John Cabot Zinn book. I haven't book, read that. Which it's dry. Okay. But um, dry is your book or not? <laughs> no, your book wasn't dry. Your not that dry. But um, oh look, lots of I read Red Notice a couple of weeks ago. It's about a Russian fund manager. That's Red Notice. Red Notice. You should put that on your list. I'll check that it's out. A goodie. I'll really check good. that I've out. I've just started reading again now. Um, I haven't read a lot for it since the kids came. I didn't read a lot, but I've just been reading it. A bit more recently I think I love it more Than anything else And that's why I was saying to you I've read a lot of sports books lately And Because it would be disrespectful Not to read someone's book Before you go and have a chat with them And Yeah sometimes it can be hard To get through books But others are, are Quite rare Have you read Agassiz's book Open? Yes I have Good sports book Good sports book Good sports book Have you read Tyson's book? Iron Mike? Yeah It's Yeah No I haven't it's I reckon I've watched book. a couple of his documentaries yeah, But I haven't book. read his book Good book So if I'd said to you today Jody, I want to chat with you for an hour And we're getting to the end of this Because you've got things to do I'm going to chat to you for an hour And we're not going to talk about footy What should we talk about? What would you have said to me? Uh, well as soon as we're sitting in this luxury's office mm. Maybe stocks <laughs> Right uh, I would have enjoyed that Restaurants in Melbourne Yep Coffee Coffee, I've never had one. Really? Mm, I don't know how far we'd get with that. That'd be a short conversation. It would be. It would um, be. That'd be it. Yeah, cobalt. right. We like cobalt at the minute. What do we like? Cobalt. Cobalt. More so than lithium? Yeah, so there's more cobalt in lithium-ion batteries than lithium. Right. And it's a, it's a byproduct from nickel and copper mines. Right. Which means that it's much harder to scale up production. We really like cobalt, Harry. This is what I needed to be talking to you about. <laughs> These always finish. Uh, my two children get involved in my podcast. As I always say, this is listeners to the Howie Games know. Uh, there is Sky, who is seven. Yeah. We're big on nicknames in our house. She's the pickle. Nice. And my young son, Mac, who's just turned five and started school, he operates, changed his name of his own volition two years ago to the Big Penguin. I like it. And we'll only answer to the Big I, Penguin. And I would like to be referred to as the Vanilla Gorilla. The Vanilla Gorilla. Yeah. Right. Why yeah. the Vanilla Gorilla? Well, I'm a very hairy, bald man. Okay. So, well, and I'm vanilla. So if I go. had been able to tell them that this morning that your nickname <laughs> was the Vanilla Gorilla, they would have would got have that excited about asking questions. So they have, both have a question for you. Would yes. you like to hear first from the Pickle or the Big Penguin? I think the Pickle. Okay. The Pickle's up first. Good question, Pickle. Good and question. I um I can tell them apart. Only recently. Right. Um, I always have to say I could always tell them apart. But, but it's at been what a age, recent phenomenon. At what age could you tell them apart? Oh, I think probably from three months onwards. So how do you not get them confused forever and be calling the wrong one the wrong name when they're zero Well, I've thought months? about this and you know what? It wouldn't really matter. <laughs> By the time they're two or three, they'll know their own name and they'll be able to correct you. And in the meantime, if you mix it up a few times, what's it matter? Well, the pickle will enjoy that because we have a real problem. Both my sisters have twins and it's now the big penguin who's starting to get into his football. I explained a little bit about your West Coast days and then the fact you changed teams, which he didn't quite understand. Yeah. Um, But this is what he came up with. Hi, Jody, big penguin here. When you left the West Coast, why didn't you choose the Hawks? Because they're the best. (laughs) 
<laughs> and looking back, might not have been a bad decision, Juddy. Where were you 12 years ago, Big Penguin? Um, no, nah, look, it's a good point, but uh, I liked I liked all the early draft picks of the Blues, and um, Hawks didn't have much to give up to get the deal done at the time. I will tell the Big Penguin that. Um, anything else you would like to say to the listeners of the Howie Games at this We've point? We've covered most of the big issues. I think looking forward have. to Friday nights on Triple M, Yeah, Howie. really looking forward to working with you on Friday nights on Triple M. That could be anything. Um, one stock. The, the Howie Games accepts no liability oh, for your house okay. or your mortgage. Just give us one to because I'm not into horse racing, so we might well, well, waste our money in a different way. I'll... Bit, lot now, now, a lot of people listen to the Howie game, so you've got to understand where this is going. And it goes global. Oh, I'm going to give you a boring one. No, don't be. If it makes money, I don't care how boring no, it is. I shouldn't say boring. I'll go, go Paragon Healthcare. It's a little health roll-up that supplies, biggest supplier of hospital equipment in Australia. Paragon Healthcare. PGC is the code. PDC. PG. PGC. Okay. And what are we entering in at? Well, they're low 70s now. Okay. And where are we finishing up at in three years' time? Oh, we'd take a dollar twenty. Okay. Well, I think that's a good tip. Well, just hang on. Just hang on a moment. So Juddy gave us that tip in February when the stock was 72 cents. Now, on the 10th of September when I'm recording this, oh, she's gone up to 89 cents, a 17 cent increase, or our man has delivered percentile terms, 23% return on your money. If you were able to get on it then, which you couldn't, but now you can. Good luck. Hey, Juddy, a pleasure to sit down with you. Um, it was nice not to just talk football with you. Um, yeah, you're a star. I appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. Cheers. Cool. Thanks to Chris Judd, a man far, far cleverer than I. I hope you make millions on his very, very hot share tip. Remember, it was six months ago, though, and that you enjoyed the episode. MJ is currently at the Singapore Grand Prix this week, nice for some, and he's got one job. I've given him one job and one job only, and that is to secure an interview with Lewis Hamilton. Come on, MJ, deliver the hammer. I know you can do it. Have a great week, guys and girls. Until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener